Good morning, church. My name is Peter, and I'm going to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, it's Scott Kuhn. He, he and his family are going to be transitioning uh, to a new season in life, and uh, I'm really kind of mixed about that. Uh, but we are supposed to give honor to whom honor is due, so we're going to be giving them honor today. But on the other hand, I've been watching, I read the book uh, by Marie Kondo about tidying up your life. And then I've been watching the Netflix series, and she says, if something sparks joy, you're supposed to keep it. Why are we not keeping you guys? Come on up, Scotty. Tell us your story. Good morning. My name is Scott Kuhn, and this is my story. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I was raised on Mercer Island by a loving and encouraging parents, and uh, I attended Mercer Island Presbyterian Church and explored my faith more in confirmation during my adolescence. And overall, I have special memories growing up on the island. I graduated from Mercer Island High School in 1975. 1975, best class alive. <laughs> this is a photo of our family circa mid to late 1970s. Notice that I was all in with a corduroy fashion and brown tones noted for the era. Father Carl and Mother Gwen, me on the left there, and my sister Chris, brother Doug, and sister Karen in that birth order. Family togetherness was a Kuhn family th theme, which made it that much more difficult when my father Carl elected to accept an assignment with the U.S. Navy Seabees Construction Battalion in South Vietnam, 1969-70, with yours truly carrying the temporary mantle of man of the house, whether I wanted to or not. Needless to say, an opportunity, growth, and responsibility had been presented. I was blessed with a Naval ROTC scholarship at the University of Washington that helped pay with, uh, for my civil engineering studies. I joined a fraternity and learned about brotherhood and then served in the United States Navy for about five years. Let's just say that these were some of those crusty and mighty salty years. Salty, not always in a good way. Mostly void of any attention towards the Lord. The beginning of my walking away years when I thought I could do it all on my own. I did not progress in my faith despite all the blessings and parents' prayers to that point, kind of like the Israelites upon their delivery by the Lord to Israel. It appeared that I had the world by the tail until my seven-year marriage ended in divorce in the early 90s. I fell to my knees and remembered what my father had said several years earlier, God is in control. My brother Doug was active and vibrant in young life, and I remember thinking to myself, I'll have what he's having. Deep down, I knew the Lord can help me in my weakness if I turn to him. Choosing to walk a new path was clear. Of course, I still needed a nudge, and I am so blessed to have been set up on a blind date with Kathy uh, that led to our eventual marriage in 1995. Special thanks to the Horn family. As plans for that blind date were originally spawned at Denny and Sharon's son Ken's wedding reception where I met a matchmaking coworker of Kathy's who learned that I was back in the saddle again. The connection, Ken and I were in the same fraternity, all part of God's plan. Heart surrendering, I set out on a new journey and that included Kathy and I attending Bible study fellowship, Mercer Island Covenant Sunday morning adult Sunday school, and eventually teaching Sunday school together at this church for the first time in 1994. 24 years later, and here I am going strong at story time with our Sunday school friend Hamilton the Hedgehog in my hand. Can you believe everybody is sitting still? I believe Pastor Julie suggested to Kathy and I that one of us or both of us were good with the kids and try it. You'll like it. More God winks. Those words of wisdom certainly ring true to this day. Needless to say, the children's ministry has been a huge blessing to Kathy and I. Our students have such open hearts. They're like sponges absorbing with ease how much Jesus loves all of them and how he wants them to love all their neighbors. Getting back to my story, not only were the uh, life's joys exponentially highlighted with the birth of daughter Rachel in 96 and Sophie in 2000, but my rebirth and faith provided immense strength during the deeply painful illness and eventually passing of Father Carl 
and he was my professional mentor, worked with him in engineering. He died from pancreatic cancer in 1998, exactly 20 years to this day. Then the unthinkable passing of my brother Doug at age 46 during a business trip following his project management stint for the Creekside Camp at Young Life's, Young Life's Washington Family Ranch in North Central Oregon. Then the passing of my mom Gwen in 2014. Only through the strength of Christ could I continue to push forward with resolve. As my mother took her last breath on earth and being the master encourager that she was, she assured my sisters and I at her bedside on taking that last breath of uh, blessed assurance by opening her eyes wide and her mouth in, in an O shape and slightly moving forward. Blessed assurance in Jesus and our eternal hope. What a beautiful gift to our family until we reunite. Not to mention that Kathy and I could not have worked professionally in the accounting world for the past nine years without God's direction. Talk about a modern-day miracle. Somehow we survived that challenge. Also, Kathy's gift to commit to various ministries, taking me along for the ride, certainly has been an inspiration. I'd be remiss without mentioning the countless blessings of community. We've got the small group. There, there's the guys. Community, uh, small group committee. Uh, this is my most recent small group. And uh, we meet on Saturday mornings in Hanson Hall, the, the fellows, enriching, transparent, prayerful, and supporting, not to mention plenty of laughs over the years. These guys have been a part of that solid foundation that helped me during our walk together. I can also remember past years with other men's small groups at various meeting places, and Kathy and I were blessed recently attending a marriage seminar, small group at the DeProns. So no matter where you meet, remember that small groups just rock, and they can be part of your rock's foundation. Final thoughts, small groups. Find the right fit and plug in. Be, you'll be glad you did. Community is what it is all about. Children's ministry. God has a plan for others in our Evergreen family. Try it. You just might like it. Be on the lookout for those God winks. Let the Lord's light shine through you. Bottom line, I am a sinner, still a work in progress, and I have not always carried my weight along the path. Definitely room for more growth as a husband, father, brother, and neighbor. But my prayer is for continued wisdom and direction as the Lord continues to watch over. Finally, the Vashon Sunset, Vashon Island, where we have a legacy family property, is setting on this chapter of my story. Kathy and I feel called to move to Spokane to be closer to Kathy's parents, who are our spiritual mentors and prayer warriors. A new journey and with bitter sweetness. A fond farewell for now. We love you, Evergreen fam uh, family. But as depicted by the Priest Lake sunrise, we plan to be back on a regular basis to visit family, friends, and, and our church family. Thank you for listening to my story. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Judges. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from chapter 3 in the New International Version. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon, to Lebo, Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see where they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up from them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, or Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. The word of the Lord. Well, church, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and we are week two in the book of Judges. 
And the series is primarily about this one idea, that God alone is perfect, that the great I am is perfect by definition. That's what God is. We, human beings, by definition, are imperfect. And so we have phrases like, I'm only human, or to err is human. So we sort of intuitively, experientially understand that part of being a human being is to be inconsistent and imperfect. But yet, even though everything we experience in life is imperfect, though we have never experienced any perfection ever, we somehow have an awareness and even a longing for that which is perfect. And I submit to you along with Scripture that The reason for that is because we are made in the image of God, the one who is perfect. And so uh, whether you think about it or not, you have this memory. You have this backdrop of perfection. And everything you experience in your known life is against this backdrop. And you can't help but compare and contrast and have this longing for something that's better than your humanness, the way you know it today. And so we look at human history, we shake our heads because we know that's not the way it's meant to be. And so that's the idea that in the book of Judges, we see this backdrop of God who is perfect, God who is faithful. And then all the drama that's unfolding in front of this backdrop is imperfect. The people of God are imperfect. All the judges that God sends to help Israel, they also are imperfect. And so we see this repeating uh, truth that God alone, only the great I am, is perfect. So that's Judges. Today, the title of the sermon is Pierce My Ear. And if you don't know the story, if you don't know the theology of it, it's going to feel a little bit out of left field. But uh, we'll get to that as we end the sermon, and hopefully it'll become a phrase that's meaningful for you, idea today is that you and I, because we are imperfect, we are imperfect in our love. We are imperfect in our commitments and our allegiances. I want to start with this idea that I bring up on a regular basis from this pulpit, and that's the idea of the second law of thermodynamics. And probably most of you can tell it to me by heart now, but the definition is something like this everything. Everything tends towards chaos. Nothing gets better automatically. Everything automatically gets worse. And when I say everything, I mean you, your body is getting worse every single minute of every day. You know, um, I once heard a comedian say that, you know, before you turn 40, doctors try to fix you. After you turn 40, doctors just try to help manage you. And I experienced that. I went to two doctors this week uh, for an issue on my uh, foot and an issue in my finger. And both doctors suggested maintenance programs. They didn't didn't offer surgery. They didn't even want to try to make it better in any way. Just here are some suggestions I have for you to deal with this for the remainder of your life. That's, I guess, the way the human body goes. Because of the secular law of thermodynamics. Your relationships are tending towards chaos. Your plumbing, your roof, your workplace environment, this church, this church building, this church culture, our nation, our politics, everything is tending towards chaos. And what's necessary to uh, not experience the full onslaught of chaos in our life is to have something outside of the system break in and add energy so that it turns the clock back a little bit. And that's the idea in Judges, that the people of Israel, they keep backsliding, they keep tending towards chaos. But God sends these judges, and these judges help turn the clock back a little bit, but just a little bit. And then things get bad again, and the judges die, and then Things get really bad, and Israel cries out. Then God sends another judge from outside the system and inputs energy into the system, and so the clock turns back a little. But then, surely, the clock ticks forward. Uh, There's three judges that are mentioned to us today. First, we have Othniel. 
Uh, verse 9 and 10 says this, but when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel. He's Caleb's, uh, the son of Caleb's younger brother. It says, who saved them? So the key word there is saved. And then verse 10 says, the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge. So the idea there, the spirit, when you see the word spirit, it means this, that judge Othniel wasn't a source of energy. He was a conduit of energy. That it was actually God and God alone who was outside of the human system and could input energy into the system, right? And Othniel serves as just the messenger. And so Othniel himself is subject to the powers of decay, but yet God is able to send his eternal energy into the system that is Israel through Othniel because God is the source. I don't want you to miss that and think that any man or any human being has energy to contribute. And then we have this judge, Ehud, and verse 15 says, again, Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Now, why does it matter that he's left-handed? It doesn't matter at all. Nobody's ever read this phrase and thought, oh my goodness, I draw so much spiritual nourishment from this. Well, maybe if you're left-handed and you've been ridiculed your whole life, you feel a little bit better, feel a little more legitimate. But if you read the story of Ehud and why he was sort of a judge in Israel, it's a ridiculous story. It is, I don't even want to say, it, it sound, it's such a politically incorrect story, but the reason it's in the Bible, commentators tell us, is because it's true. If you were to invent the story, you would never put these details in. But the fact that these irrelevant, unhelpful, yet colorful details are in the story serves as some kind of evidence that it's probably people bearing witness to what actually happened. So go ahead, if you like, read Ehud's story. It's ridiculous. And then we have this third judge, Shamgar. It says this, verse 31, After Ehud came Shamgar, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. What is an ox goad? I don't know. I didn't look it up. And then it says, he too saved Israel. So here's the idea that each of these judges saved Israel. Israel. So given our uh, idea, the second law of thermodynamics, and the fact that these judges served as a counter to the second law, a temporary counter to the second law, I want to define salvation for us and maybe help some of us who are not Christians here in this room understand that salvation isn't just a religious word. It's an everyday reality phenomenon. That whether you're religious or not, you experience this idea of salvation because everything in your life every day is tending towards chaos, right? And you have to save it. So here's what salvation means. Really simple. Salvation is course correction. Something is headed towards chaos in this one particular direction. And then you intervene. It's an intervention. And you add energy and change the direction of that thing, which was headed in that way, you're making it go this way instead. So let's talk about your kitchen sink. It's tending towards chaos. Has any kitchen sink ever in the history of kitchen sinks gotten clean by themselves? Did you have to intervene? What did that intervention look like? Did you need energy? Did you need time, effort, work? Yes? When you inputted the work, what did you do for the kitchen sink? You saved it. You changed the direction. It was getting worse, and then you made it go better. Was it permanent? Because it's tending towards chaos. You served as a judge. The Spirit of the Lord came upon you. You saved your marriage probably too in the process. Because God knows it doesn't take much to have a marriage need saving. Somebody said, got it. <laughs> so that's the idea. But I want us to focus on verse 4. 
expand on this idea of saving here. Verse 4 says this. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. Uh, First, this idea of ancestors. See, God alone is the source of energy. He's the source of light and truth and love. And God has been faithful. He's been committed to people for the whole of the existence of these people. And so we have this idea of ancestors. That it's not just this present day Israel that God has been loving. But it's Israel before that Israel. And Israel before that Israel. There's a kind of constant intervention. Constant energy input by God. Do you know that you are your descendants' ancestors. That you can try to be faithful to your descendants. That you can input energy. You can give them words. You can give them resources. You can leave them land and money. You can leave them a legacy. And yet they're going to keep deteriorating because you're going to pass. You can't keep inputting into their life. And yet God has been faithful through the generations. He's been committed to his people. That's our God. And God is saying, I'm going to give you these commands, but I'm not going to just give it to you and then go because you need constant input. So I'm going to give you these commands and I'm going to aliven them for you. I'm going to walk with you. Not just you, but your descendants. And not just your descendants, but their descendants. I'm going to be faithful upon faithful, upon faithful, that's God. Here's another way to say that. He's saying, I am going to be this one large presence in your life. And if you stay connected, anchored to me, you are not going to deteriorate. I'm going to perpetually course correct you as long as you need because I am a faithful God. These commands I give you, they are anchor points that will save you. Let me say it this way. As I was meditating on uh, this idea this week, I imagined this uh, picture of me standing in a river. And here's the thing about a river that I'm learning as I'm sort of exploring the wilderness here more. I'm learning that a river doesn't see me or care about me. The, force, the forces of the river are constantly up against me all the time. And if I don't fight the river, I'm going to go the way of the river. That's the way rivers work. I can only fight the forces of the river so much. At some point, I need an anchor. I need to be tied to something that's stronger than the river or the way of the river I go. You can see this picture. A raging river doesn't care about you. And God is saying, you need me to fight the forces of the second law of thermodynamics that is the river of life that's pushing up against you. Life is relentless. It's going to keep coming at you. Doesn't care if you've caught your breath. Doesn't care if you've slept enough or eaten enough. It doesn't matter if you're ready. The river of life will keep pushing against you. And you can't win. There is no way you can keep contending with the river. Eventually, unless you have a power, a point, an immovable point that you're connected to, you're going to succumb. And you're going to tend towards chaos. And God is saying, I am that point. Do you want to be defined by culture? The culture doesn't see you. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't love your soul the way Jesus does. It doesn't know what you're thinking or feeling. It just is. And it's pushing against you. And it's going to shape you. It's going to carve out a shape in its own image. So what choice do we have? Verse 15 in Deuteronomy 15 says this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. 
you know, this idea of redemption or redeem, it's really powerful. How many of you know judo? Let me see a show of hands. One, two. Okay, what's the major principle of judo? There's one major principle, and it's this idea of translating energy. If you've practiced judo, you know this. Judo, the magic of judo is that you don't stop the force of the other person. You actually use their force coming against you to your advantage. So if they lunge towards you, you pull some kind of move, and they're the ones on the ground and not you. And you exert very little energy because you don't have to exert anything. You just have to translate their energy. And that's the idea of redemption, that God doesn't have to sort of stop evil. He can use evil for the good. And it's sort of God's way of giving evil enough rope to hang itself. It's defeated by its own energy. And that's what God is saying here. I am going to redeem you. All that energy of slavery that's up against you, that doesn't care about you, that just wants to use you and abuse you and objectify you. He's going to translate all of that death and decay for your good. He's going to redeem you. And he says, that is why I give you this command. He says, if you anchor to me, if you allow me to be the energy input into your life, then all the things that are against you, all the forces of the river of life that's pressing against you, that's seeking to shape you in its own image, it's going to be flipped. It's going to be used for your good and to his glory because you are made in his image. He knows how this works. And so God says he is your redeemer. He's your savior. He's your source of course correction. He's the blueprint for truth. He is love. He is what is good. He is all that is right. He is your meaning. He can take your history and redeem it for the future. He is your who, what, where, when, and how. Large statements God makes. And he asks you to make a large commitment in response to him. To commit to him. And so I started thinking about this idea of large commitments. And I just want to tell you, I am not good with commitments. This is something that I'm coming to grips with. This is something that the interview committee at this church saw when they were uh, interviewing me seven years ago. They said, Peter, you're great. We love you. You look really good on paper. But there's a pattern we recognize about you. You stink at commitments. How is it that you have been at so many different churches? Why do you keep starting churches and then leaving them? Why do you have so many real estate transactions in your marriage? By the way, we've had 13. Tell us about that. And so I, I just, at this point, I just have to just lose to this truth that I'm not good with commitments. But there are things that have really been the most impactful, that have served as the greatest anchor point so that I just go by the way of my tendencies. And these things for me personally are my marriage is primary. As I look back on my life, I see that these last 22 years of being married to Susie has been the most formative force in my life. I've experienced salvation through this marriage in a way that I just can't in any other way. Now, when I say that, that is not to say that everyone should get married. You should not feel less than if you are not married or you're divorced now. I'm not making a judgment statement at all. I'm just saying that marriage has been a force in my life. I can't escape it. There it is. Every morning, every night, throughout the day, there it is, calling me to be shaped by it. Marriage is not something I do, I'm learning, but it's something larger than me. It is something that does me, that works on me. I don't have control. I have entered into it. Uh, second force in my life has been my kids. I remember this exact moment when I was afraid of my kids. Uh, when my first child was born, I remember I didn't love it at all. I just saw a bag of responsibilities. 
And I worked really hard at guarding my heart. I didn't want to love my kid. I wanted to be loving to my kid, but I didn't want to love my kid. Because then I would lose power, and it would have the power to make or break my day. And it took months, months later, I remember this exact moment. Even now, I can picture myself. I remember where I was sitting, which part of the house I was sitting in Bayside, New York, zip code 11361. I was sitting there, and I had one of those oh, no moments. I said, oh, no, I love my kid. Oh, no, this thing's going to ruin my life. Another area that has really been helpful for me in countering the forces against me is discipline. If I just go the way of my feelings, I, I shudder to think what that life would be. But I've been able to say no and yes because of discipline. You know, discipline, a simple definition is you feel what you feel, but you do what you have to do. If you can live that way, you can live a disciplined life and it can save your life. And then... Uh, the fourth thing for me that has been the most helpful commitment is constant mentorship. People who have been given the right to contradict me. And I want to mention this especially because I do interact with many people who uh, I know they don't have voices who contradict them. They just want people to agree. They just want people to affirm. They just want to vent. But they don't have people who say, hey, Peter, I don't think you, you're getting it. These four things have been huge anchor points, commitments in my life. Some of you know that I love uh, David Brooks. Um, and uh, he wrote a book that I read about a year and a half ago when it first came out called, called The Road to Character. And I want to invite you to read that book. It's really a powerful book. Um, I had a section in the book I wanted to quote to us today, but it sounded a little dry for this context. So I searched online. I was able to find a commencement speech he gave, uh, and it just quotes, reads better in this context. So I'm going to read you a section of that. It's worth our time, and so I ask you to follow along. And I really personally relate to it, and so humor me uh, at minimum. It says, he says this, to have a fulfilling life, you have to make promises. You have to surrender some freedom of choice to taste a higher freedom. The freedom that comes after you've settled on a direction, change yourself to a cause, and enlarge your capacities. It is precisely our restraints that liberate us for the higher freedom. You have to chain yourself to years of piano practice to have the freedom to really play. To lead a fulfilling life, most of us make four big commitments to a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to a faith, and to a community. The measure of our lives depends on how well we choose these four enduring commitments and how well we execute on our promises to them. And then he goes on to say this. The people who look at life through a moral lens inverse the normal logic of life. Normally, when we're making the big decisions, we try to follow a straightforward cost-benefit logic. Does this meet my needs? Does this work for me? Am I getting more out of this than I put in? But people who adopt the moral lens are looking for ways to forget themselves, surrender themselves, to throw themselves into something without counting the cost. They understand, if only by instinct, that their true joy is found on the distant side of unselfishness, not on the side of it. People who use the moral lens don't ask, what do I want from life? They ask, what is life asking of me? People who see through a moral lens don't ask, how big is my impact? They ask, can I do this work the way it should be done? Dorothy Sayers once wrote that if you try to serve the community with your work, you will end up distorting your work. You'll be angling for applause. You'll be thinking the world owes you something. But if you just try to serve the work, if you just do your specific craft the way it should be done, you'll end up serving the community even more. People who see through a moral lens have a different view of marriage. They don't just ask, is this person right for me? They ask, does this person bring out my loveliness? 
Can I love her in a way that brings out her loveliness? Can we together take our private passion and direct it outward? Can our morning snuggles spread outward and include our children? Can our sideways glances warm a party, a barbecue, a neighborhood, and a home? People who see through a moral lens see their own self-centeredness as the main problem in any relationship. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it, we all have a tendency to regard the other person's self-centeredness as a problem in a relationship. But selfishness in you prompts selfishness in them. And if a relationship is going to succeed, somebody has to break the pattern and make a sacrifice play. We have all been raised in an individualistic culture. That culture subtly encourages us to bargain with life, to stand halfway out, and to protect our interests at all times. It it encourages a subtle pattern of putting everything at arm's length, of looking over somebody's shoulder to see if something better may be around. This arm's length pattern leads to private loneliness and public fragmentation. One of the chief challenges of our generation is to heal the social isolation we see all around us, which leads to rising suicide rates, rising mental illness, greater inequality, falling social trust, strained family bonds, and a loss of national cohesion. In Captain Corelli's Mandolin, a father speaks to his daughter about his late wife. He says this, love is what is left over when being in love has burned away. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. This is where promises end. When you make a promise and live out a promise year upon year, through thick and thin, no more promising is required because you are one tree. You're one tree with your family. You're one tree with your vocation. You're one tree with your community. You're one tree with your faith. You have moved from freedom to sweet compulsion. Let's apply this truth that we've heard today. I want to start with me. I want to admit that I feel so challenged by this. And I've been saying week after week that the word, the idea that God is working on me about is this idea of trust. And here's the word that I'm hearing from God recently. I've been saying to God, God, teach me how to trust so that I know how to commit to things. And then God is saying to me this week, Peter, I can't teach you to trust until you commit to things. You have to take a step of faith. And you have to learn how to stay. You have to learn how to say yes. You have to learn how to give. You have to learn how to be vulnerable. And then... You will learn how to trust. You will learn what trust is. Do you know that when you say yes to your spouse, you're saying no to a thousand other people? Do you know that it means you forsake all others? I hear from this church this invitation. To me, in general, I hear the message, Peter, stay a while. Take off your shoes. Sit down. (laughs) And I'm wrestling with that. It's really scary for me. I know that my record, previous record, is four years, and I'm in my seventh year, so every day is a new record for me. But it's scary. It's really scary for me. I want you to know that. And my anxieties about this come out all sideways. It's so interesting. You know, we put our house on the market uh, a week before Thanksgiving, and then our contract expired. And so we extended our contract. This is with the other house we wanted to buy, and it expired this past Tuesday. And so our sign is gone, and our house didn't sell, and we're not going to sell it uh, at, at this time. And I'm sitting there with Susie going, what happened? Are we supposed to commit to this house? This is the price we have to pay to learn this lesson. Susie, you're good at commitment. This is all my doing. I don't know what's going on. I'm not saying what's, what one is God's will and the other isn't. That's not the word I want you to hear. I'm saying that God's talking to me about commitments, about the role of large commitments in my life and how if I'm not willing to make large commitments, I'm not going to have a sufficient enough of an anchor point and I am going to float away the way of the river. 
And I don't want that. So I want to turn now the application to you. And I have two challenges for you. The first challenge is I want you to commit to this community or to a community. I want to invite you to commit to a church slash community. I know that we live in a culture that values optimizing, that values options. It's the opt-out culture. I know that a sense of place and a sense of real life together is becoming increasingly foreign and distant. But I'm telling you, you need this. It's not that the church needs you. It's that you need the church. And so here are some practical ways I want to invite you to consider committing to this or any other local church. Number one is I want to invite you to join a small group as you've been hearing today. Get into a small group. See what it's like to commit to a group of people who are probably way worse than you are. What does that feel like? How will that shape you? How will that teach you? How will that correct course for you? I want you to try it season after season after season. Join a small group. Come on in. The water is fine. The second thing is I want to invite you to give money to this church. Our statistics follow along the same sad pattern, which is 20% of the people bear the weight of 80% of the church. According to Scripture, when you give 10% of your money away, that becomes the cornerstone in your life. You understand that you own nothing. You understand that everything you have is a gift. And you begin to understand you are called to live a life of generosity, that to give is better than to get. And it begins to shape who you are. That's what the Bible says. Now, I'm not saying you have to give to this church, but I'm saying you have to give at least 10% away. It's as true as gravity itself, as true as thermodynamics itself. It's a principle. So I invite you to do that. And for this church, I also invite you to attend regularly. The average person, the average Christian churchgoer attends church now in our culture one Sunday a month. I want to invite you to change, flip that so that it's at least three or four times a month. If there's five Sundays in a given month, I'll give you a freebie. Don't come to church that fifth Sunday. Go do something. But come at least three, four times. Make that commitment. Stop optimizing every Sunday morning. Just come. And then lastly, I invite you to volunteer, to serve. Don't assume that the people who serve want to serve every single time. We love taking turns. Let's do that together. And I want to end on this final challenge to you. I want to invite you to commit to God himself. Deuteronomy 15, 15, I read to us, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But I didn't read you verse 16 and 17. It says this, But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you. Then take an owl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. And the idea back then, slavery isn't the slavery uh, that was the atrocity in our country. Uh, it was different. It was uh, by choice often and uh, you were supposed to release your servant after a set number of years and uh, what would happen sometimes is the master and the servant would fall in love with each other. They would become family. Somehow the roots have grown together and they become one tree they find. And so then the servant makes a choice to be a servant for life. And then if that were the case, the master would take the servant to the door, take a nail, punch a hole through the servant's ear into the door, symbolizing they're not leaving the house anymore. Right? And then they would put a ring through that hole. And that servant is marked as somebody who chooses in love to stay with this family. And I remember growing up uh, in my high school youth group days when I was being spiritually formed, uh, the particular youth pastors I had loved this song. And they would speak of God's love and about his sacrifice, about his death, about his greatness. And then they would invite us to sing this song 
voluntarily in response say, God, your commitment to me calls forth from me commitment to you. And so I ask you today to pierce my ear. Now that I know by choice, I want to be your servant for life. I choose you, Lord. And we'd sing this song with tears flowing down our cheeks. We'd say, pierce my ear. We sing this song. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day. I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay. For you have paid the price for me. With your blood, you ransomed me. I will serve you eternally. A free man, I'll never be. And so church, I'm going to invite you to uh, just, Katie and the band are going to lead us in this song. And if this is your prayer, say, God, I commit to you. I want you to be the large commitment in my life, the shaping force, the counter to the river, the anchor point, the energy input in my life. I want you to pray this prayer today as you sing. I want to invite you to take your seats. We're going to take a moment to uh, say farewell to Scott and Kathy. One of the things that are so beautiful about uh, their story is that they really showed us what commitment looks like, and they've been so faithful, and we want to give honor to whom honor is due. So Julie and Elise, come on up. We are excited for this new season that the Coons are embracing, but we are sad that we are the ones who have to let go of them. Scott and Kathy, come on up. This morning, we are going to be thanking and blessing Scott and Kathy as they prepare for their move to Spokane, as I said, in this new season of life. They have been with us for 24 years, serving in many different capacities because they're the kind of people who, if there's a need, they say, how can we help? But specifically, some of the big areas or large commitments that they have made, Scott in men's ministries, children and family and youth, and he was my deacon for years, uh, just a great leader, and Scott, uh, thank you for that. And Kathy, she had... um, She was on the elder board. She's worked with our youth. She was our church treasurer, which is a really fun job. Um, We want to thank you for all the ways. And then Christmas Craft Workshop, Kathy's been a big part of that. Uh, And like I said, just so many areas, I can't name them all. Uh, But what their real claim to fame is, is their title of Teacher Scott and Teacher Kathy. Um, For 24 years, they have been teaching our preschoolers. And when I say teaching, I mean teaching. It's not just daycare in that room. These kids learn important uh, lessons for them to be able to know that God loves them and how that they can serve God. A story that I have is one of the uh, times that one of the little boys, who's now in his 20s, but back then... uh, his mom asked him after church, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And uh, Derek said, I learned about creation. And she said, well, who's created everything? And he said, teacher Scott and teacher Kathy. (laughs) A little heresy going on here, but they were sitting still. still, And that's all that Scott ever cared about. So Navy guy, guy, don't move. (laughs) But it, it is true in a way because Scott and Kathy created an atmosphere in that preschool room where these children felt like they belonged there. And they were able to become who Christ wants them to be so that later on they could engage in God's work. And that's what they learned every week. So Scott and Kathy, we have something really special that we want to send you off with. Not today, because you all are going to have a part in creating this. Um, Elise, you want to explain what this is? Yeah, so this is a tree that is a representative of us. Um, We are the branches on it. Your thumbprints, you're going to put your thumbprint on it and then sign your name. So we wanted to send a piece of us with you as you go 
because you've been an important part of our family and we are ever grateful for you. So. And it says, if you look subtly, it says Evergreen Covenant Church in the trunks of the tree. So this is a beautiful piece of artwork that we had commissioned so that you would want to hang it up. And it says, there's a plaque at the bottom that says, we thank God for you every time we think of you from Philippians 1.3, which is so true. So um, leadership team, I'm going to ask if there are any members in here, if you would come on up. And Scott and Kathy, if you would come here, we're going to pray for Scott and Kathy, and then you all are going to participate in us sending them off with a benediction. So come on and surround. We're going to just say a, a one-sentence one prayer as we pass the microphone around. Please join us, and then we will um, end with the benediction. So Peter, I'll have you start. God, we will remember them, and we look forward to seeing them again and again and again. Father, I pray that you would surround them with a community of your people who would love and support and encourage them. Father, you've been such an encouragement with these two in our preschool room. And uh, they, they allow, allow that love to pass through our kids onto the parents as well. God, you have shown yourself faithful through the presence of Scott and Kathy. You have been faithful to them, and they have been faithful servants of you. We pray that your Holy Spirit go before them now. Bless them in this next chapter of life. And God, we pray that they would go with our love and our blessing and draw us close to you and to your side. May they be an inspiration to us all of what it looks like to seek you, to follow you, and to give you our lives. Bless them this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, church, I'm going to ask you to stand and extend your hands out to Scott and Kathy as we send them off with this blessing. Scott and Kathy, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and your family and give you peace as you go. Amen.